Mike Lindstedt, president and co-founder of the Nehemiah Project, and you are listening to the Nehemiah Project podcast, where we replace hopelessness with hope. Well, today we are going to embark on a new podcast series, as we so often do here, and we're going to be talking about the origin of evil, the origin of evil. We have at length discuss the problem of evil. And I would encourage you, if you've never listened to that podcast series that we did a few years ago, to go listen to that podcast series because the problem of evil is certainly a fascinating topic, certainly a topic that has been heavily debated for millennia. And it all stems out of the fact that evil exists. And so what we want to do in this podcast series is dive deep into the origin of evil. And then what we also want to do is show how the world defines evil, how it has proposed solutions to this issue uh, versus how the Bible defines it, evil mm-hmm. and how the Bible proposes the solution to the problem of evil. Today's podcast is going to be introductory. We're going to cite a few different references, but the goal of today's podcasts is it pertains to the origin of evil is the world's view versus the Bible's view. But first, let me introduce my co-host, Mr. Chad Wiles. Chad, how you doing, brother? Good, man. How are you doing? I am doing well. This topic is something that has been um, on my mind as of late as I've been taking um, my biblical counseling class at the Master's University. Um, Dr. Ernie Baker is the author of the course that I'm taking, and um, he's just written so many great articles on all kinds of things having to do with Mm. biblical counseling, but he's well-versed in the secular psychological literature. And I love how he just brings up, you know, the different systems, the different philosophies. He he does understand them. He's not naive about them. Um, He understands neuropsychology, understands a whole lot of the things that are pertinent to this concept of psychology. Um, But he's a biblical counselor, you know? Mm. So he really understands the word of God and he knows how to minister the word of God. And it's been such a blessing to me. And uh, one of the articles that we're going to be referencing uh, quite often, probably throughout the first couple of episodes of this series is called the significance of sin for the psychologies. And it was written by Dr. Ernie Baker, and it's going to provide some great structure, some good insights for us in this podcast series. But Chad, you got anything to, to say before we embark on the introductory portion of this podcast? I just think it's uh, very important um, for us to understand the problem of evil or the definition of sin because it is foundational when it comes to um, just our anthropology. How do we understand ourselves? Mm -hmm. And so many have sought out the psychological world uh, as experts um, when it comes to problems that they face, um, different issues that they face. And that's a, that's a mistake because mm-hmm. at the very root of uh, secular psychology, the anthropology is off in yeah. a very major way. And I think we'll see that today as we walk through it. Yeah. Dr. Ernie Baker says in his article that I referenced earlier, he says, if we're going to properly diagnose personal problems, we must include a biblical view of what is truly wrong right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you think about a doctor, you go see him because, you know, your side's hurting, your belly's hurting, or your head's hurting or whatever. And if he gets that diagnosis wrong, or if she gets that diagnosis wrong, they're going to begin to prescribe treatment based on their diagnosis. 
if they don't understand the problem, you're wasting your time, you're wasting your money, and ultimately your health is on the line. Mm -hmm. It's literally no different with the soul, right? right. The spiritual side of us is undeniable, although the world would try to deny it. But we've done a whole podcast series on what makes humans human, right? And we, we explore that mm -hmm. relationship between the inner man and the outer man, the physical part of our being and the spiritual part of our being. And much of what psychology tries to do is they try to just take care of the outer man. Right. Right. And we're going to get into all, a lot of that today. But keep that in your mind, listener, that if we're going to properly diagnose any personal problem, we must include a biblical view of what is truly wrong. So how does the Bible then define sin? Well, number one, let's look at the two words. Um, I'm sorry, let's look at the two languages of the word sin. So we have the, the word uh, for sin in the Hebrew. Check this out, Chad. I'm about to go straight Hebrew on you. <laughs> <laughs> which literally is a noun. It just means sin. It's a sinful thing. And the first mention of this word is in Genesis chapter four, verse seven. Here's what it says. It says, if you do well, this is God speaking to Cain, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin or chakta'a is lying at the door and its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. So mm -hmm. this is the first mention of sin. And we see a couple of things just in this passage alone. Number one, sin is active. It's lying at the door and its desire is for you. In, in some sense, it's alive, right? right? It's not passive. It is quite active. Um, it's almost described as having its own mind, its own will, its own desires, right? Its desires to rule the person. Right? Right, absolutely. And so this is where the Apostle Paul picks up on this idea and he starts using, you know, the language of slavery as it pertains to men and women being enslaved to the bondage of sin because sin's desire is to rule us, right? And we'll talk much more about that later. Here's another example in Genesis chapter 18 of how this word for sin in the Hebrew is used. It's Genesis chapter 18, verse 20 the Lord speaking of the infamous Sodom and Gomorrah, he says this, the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great and their sin is exceedingly grave. That is not something you want the Lord to say about you. That is for sure. The sin is exceedingly grave. So there we see that sin's end is in the grave. Sin ultimately will lead you to death. It will ultimately lead you to eternal separation from the creator. So that's the Hebrew word for sin. What about the Greek word for sin? Well, the Greek word, the primary word used here for sin is harmartia. Um, this word is basically has the, the understanding of, or the meaning of, I should say, missing the mark, right? It's associated with guilt. Um, you can think of it as failure in an ethical sense, right? It can be manifest in deeds. It can be manifest in thoughts. Mm -hmm. It is actually quite bigger than just deeds and thoughts. It's really the state of existence that we exist in. Uh, but let's look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, to see a usage of this word. It says of Jesus and Mary, that Mary will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. This is the angel Gabriel appearing 
to his mother, Jesus' mother, Mary. And Gabriel tells Mary that she's going to bear a son. And Jesus is going to be his name, and he will be the one who saves people from their sins, Harmartia. Chad, what does Matthew chapter 9, verse 2 and verse 5 say? Matthew 9, verse 2 says, And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And then in verse 5, it also says, uh, For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? So in these few verses, we, we make a couple of observations. Back in the 21 verse, we saw that sin needs saving from, right? And to be more theologically accurate, it's not necessarily that we have to be saved from our sins. We have to be saved from the wrath of God because of our sins, right? Mm. And then in the Matthew 9 texts, we saw that sin needs to be forgiven, right? Yeah. And that sins, once they're forgiven, will produce new life. Or, mm. you know, in this particular case, this person had a new ability. He could now get up and walk, right? right. So there is a regenerative aspect, right, mm -hmm. to having sins forgiven. Right. Chad, any comments before we move on? Yeah, and sin is best understood against the backdrop of a holy God, obviously, right? Um, the Bible also talks about sin where it calls it sin is lawlessness, yeah. right? And it's breaking the holy law of God. So what Mike said there uh, gives us the reason why we needed to be saved from our sin because a just and holy God must deal justly with sin, mm -hmm. which deserves punishment and wrath. And so if man has sin, then man is under the condemnation and wrath of God. Therefore, we need salvation. We need rescuing. We yeah. need something, someone to intervene and pay the penalty or satisfy the wrath of God, which is who Christ is and what Christ did. Yes. And so the question that we should just answer, even though it may be obvious to many of our listeners, is, well, who's guilty of it, right? Mm -hmm. Who's guilty of sin? <laughs> Surely not I, right? Yeah. I'm, there's good in me, right? There's a little bit of good. I do good things, right? Well, Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 18 are really just the most explicit, conclusive statement on the biblical teaching yeah. of the sinfulness of mankind. And here's what the Apostle Paul says. He's just quoting a bunch of Old Testament verses, and he says this, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. Mm -hmm. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Mm -hmm. So that, that talks about the scope yeah. of unrighteousness among men. And then he just goes literally from the inside out, covers all the members of the body. Verse 13, their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues, they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips. Mm -hmm. Throat, tongue, lips, full corruption, right. right? Then he says, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God mm -hmm. before their eyes. So nobody is excluded from right. that definition there. And I want to talk about that reality just for a moment. There is some truth, a half-truth, to there is good in us. Here's what I mean. We're all created in the image of God, and because of that, um, there is some aspect of a conscience and knowing right from wrong and knowing the Lord. Mm -hmm. But all of that has been marred and corrupted by sin, yeah. right? That idea that Paul would state, the little you know, leaven 
Little leaven all. leavens the whole lump. Right. To give a little bit more of a modern uh, analogy, uh, this is not original to me, but when I was in uh, my former church back in Lexington, now seven or eight years ago, uh, had a pastor there um, who was an awesome guy. He was a college pastor, mm-hmm. and he would always use this. He 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 worked with athletes in action and all these different things. So mm-hmm. he's taking the gospel, you know, into the front lines of people that don't really understand these things that we're talking about. Yeah. And so he would use the example to illustrate how sin corrupts everything. It, he would say, what if I went to Sonic, someplace like that, and I got ice cream. I got like a, what are those, Sonic Blasts or a Blizzard from Dairy Queen or whatever. Come yeah. on, man. You it know? is getting close to lunchtime. Look at that. Yeah. So let's say, Mike, I'm, I stop and I get a couple of those. But on the way in, I want to play a little prank on you. And I saw... A dog had had pooped in the yard, yep. right? And I take just a little bit of it, you and wicked, I mix it wicked, in. You a wicked man. And I mix it in. You wouldn't be able to taste it. You wouldn't even know. But when I tell you there was dog poop in that, what would you think about that ice cream? Mm-hmm. You want to throw it away. You don't want to eat any of it. Yep. It's all been contaminated, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I know it's a silly analogy, and, not, and every analogy is not perfect, but that's I think that's a good illustration that the sin that we have within us has marred everything Mm -hmm. and it's gross so you can't say well i can i can be good or i can try to make myself good because since sin permeates all of us Mm -hmm. therefore we still deserve the full wrath of god because of the sin that is within us yeah furthering that idea along because this is something that is um very consequential like how Mm. you view man uh mankind will have ramifications for every other part of your beliefs mm-hmm. and it's something that has been heavily debated all throughout church history <clears throat> from the beginning of mankind because again we see evil it's it's quite clear there's mm-hmm. something wrong in this world right. right it's not all perfect right so does mankind have anything that in god's view is good right that's that's what we are ultimately right. asking because no no thinking christian is going to deny that on a human level, right. and we said this many times, on a human level, there are good things that do happen, mm-hmm. and I'm not. No one's arguing that. Yeah, yeah, of course there are, but the but ultimately, what we're concerned with is, is that good in God's sight? Right, right. Is that holy in right. God's sight? Because that's where you have to put it against the character of God. That's right. You have to measure it against the holiness of God, right. and holiness is difficult to understand mm-hmm. because we just don't see it anywhere, really. Yeah. You know. And the answer is a resounding no. Mm-hmm. There is nothing holy within mankind. Why? Right. Because a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Right. Right? One imperfection, even if it's just one tiny one, is not perfect. Right. And right. it's it would be, because someone might go, oh, but it's a little leaven, right? And it has to progressively get worse. You're misunderstanding the analogy. Mm-hmm. Imagine you're a mirror, okay? You throw a rock into that mirror, the whole thing shatters. Yeah. The whole thing's broken, mm-hmm. okay? So we have to understand that um, in God's sight, a little sin, quote unquote, is enough to damn us forever, mm-hmm. right? That's the seriousness with which we have to approach this topic because it is the greatest problem that mankind has. Right. There is no other problem that should consume more of your efforts to fix, right, than this problem. Mm-hmm. And the, the beauty of this reality is, is that God has provided a solution 
to fix the sin problem. And we'll get into that later. But the question I want to address now was, okay, well, where does sin reside, right? Where is it? Can I like lob it off? Is it like in my arm? Is it in my legs? Right. Is it in, is like what Jesus said, if your eye causes you to sin, then gouge it out. Am I going to be fixed then? Right. No. And first of all, Jesus was not promoting <laughs> self-mutilation because we're going to find out if you were to cut your eyeballs out of your mind or out of your eyes, you still have sin in your mind. Mm -hmm. If you were to get rid of your brain, not only would you be dead, <laughs> but you'd still have sin, right? Because sin resides ultimately in the heart right. of man. Now, Chad, being the biblical counselor that you are, before we read our text, can you just give us a succinct definition of what the Bible means when it says yeah. the heart? When the Bible speaks about the heart, it's speaking about the inner man, the things that make up our our personality, our character, our thoughts, everything. So an uh, oh, easy way to think about it, it's our cognition, it's our thoughts, our beliefs, it's our affections, our desires, our emotions, and it's our volition, which is our will into action, or into our choices. As the Bible would say, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Mm -hmm. And so when the, the Bible speaks about the heart, it's speaking about an all-encompassing aspect of who you are, your character. Everything else is just the outer man, just the physical, the physiological aspect mm -hmm. of it. But that's not really who you are. Who you are is is the inner man, the character, the thoughts. The Now, the, the outer man can influence the inner man, which we can talk about. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But the heart encompasses everything, your soul, your your yeah. mind, your, your attitudes, your actions, all of that. Yes, to quote the authors of the Hebrew and Aramaic lexicon of the Old Testament, here's what they said. And I can't pronounce their names because these are really uh, German names. But <laughs> the, they, they define it this way. They said the heart is defined as, quote, one's inner self, the seat of feeling and emotions, mm -hmm. your inclination, your disposition, your will, your reason, and your mind in general, right? Yeah. So it's every, it's the immaterial part of you, every right? Bit of it. What makes humans humans is the heart and the outer man, the physical body, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so some people may be able to comprehend what we're saying a little bit more easily by referring to the heart as the soul, right? Yeah. Um, now that may not be an exhaustive word, but just for, to help our listeners understand yeah, what we're yeah. talking about. We're talking about the soul, right? The heart of you is the soul. And so where does sin reside? Well, it resides in the heart. Here's the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then I'll have you, Chad, read Jeremiah 17, 9. But in Mark chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, our Lord says this, For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, sexual immoralities, thefts, murders, adulteries, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these things proceed from within and they defile the man, mm -hmm. right? Jesus speaking to the Pharisees who were tripping on his disciples not washing their hands before they ate. Jesus said, there's nothing that goes into a man that could defile him. It's what comes out of him that defiles him. It's ultimately our heart mm -hmm. is, what, is what makes us unclean. It defiles right. us. And that's all encompassing. So that's why you can't just cut off a member. You know? Right. Jesus told the Pharisees again, you whitewashed tombs, right? Clean the inside first and then the outside will be clean, right? Mm -hmm. He's talking about this in, in, uh, inside out um, sort of cleansing that we need. And so mm -hmm. what does Jeremiah 17, 9 tell us? Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is deceitful above all else and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Right. Who can understand it is the, the question that's posed there. What does the next verse say? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind 
to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. So our hearts are broken, mm-hmm. right? Not in the sad, lovesick way. Our yeah. hearts are fundamentally broken. Something right. wrong, right? Something mm-hmm. went wrong, and we're going to talk about that. But who should we go to to figure out the solution? Right. Who can understand it is what Jeremiah said. Right. Only God. Only God, right? It makes sense because he's the one who made it. Mm-hmm. Now, if our hearts are busted and broken and beyond repair, then it just stands to reason that we need a new one, right? right? We need a new soul. And guess what? That's the new covenant promise found in Jeremiah chapter 31. I'll start at verse 31. This is, by the way, found in the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. He says this, Behold, days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will cut a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I cut with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant, which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. So God is saying there's going to be a new covenant, not like the one that Moses established. We're going to make a brand new one. Mm -hmm. And here's what he says in the 33rd verse. But this is the covenant which I will cut with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it and I will be their God and they shall be my people. The prophet Ezekiel gives us further instruction on the new covenant promise. Here's what he said in chapter 36 of Ezekiel, starting at verse 25. God speaking, then I will sprinkle clean water on you, Israel, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. And moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to do all my judgments. So we see the problem of sin starts in the heart. Mm -hmm. Sin resides in our heart and it's beyond repair. We need a new one. And that's the new covenant, the New Testament promise that Jesus Christ has fulfilled on behalf of all those who would believe in him. Mm -hmm. That's the hope. So before we get to the next part of our podcast about where did this whole thing start, Chad, do you have any comments before we transition into that? Uh, No, I think a lot of things I would say are about to be answered. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, then the obvious question is, all right, Mike, well, I hear what you're saying. I get it. My heart's broken. Cool. I'm not sure I understand all that yet, but Mm. okay, let's go next. Well, how did this all start, right? How did we get here? How did we get here? How did we get to a place where people could be so brutal to one another, mm-hmm. right? How do, how do we get to this place? Well, it all goes back to the Garden of Eden. Let's go to Genesis chapter three to find out where did this all start. And let's read verses one through seven. Chad, why don't you go ahead and read for us, brother? Happy to. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. 
Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So quite a stark contrast from Genesis mm-hmm. chapter 1, verse 31, which says, And God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was all very good. Yeah. Right? Now something has changed. Mm-hmm. You, know, you know, God created Adam and Eve to be fully dependent upon him mm-hmm. for everything. They needed him not only for life, but to understand how they got there, to understand, for Adam to understand who Eve is, mm-hmm. right? You could go ahead and read Je- Genesis chapter one and two, and you can see that God created mankind to literally be dependent upon him, mm-hmm. right? And we'll, we'll dive into the significance of that in a later episode. But in Genesis chapter three, we see a new character introduced. Yeah. One that's referred to as the serpent. And the serpent desires to provide counsel to the woman, yeah. He he wants her attention. He wants her to listen to him, not God. And he has to get her allegiance from trusting in God, depending on God, to trusting in her own understanding, depending on other people's counsel, other individuals' counsel. Mm-hmm. You see that shift there, listener. God created you to be dependent upon him and his counsel. But the heart of man at this point now says, nah, I've got it. I'm going to listen to this counselor over here. Yeah. And the key to the deception was you will be like God. That's right. That's the key. That was the promise, right? That promise that did not deliver as Eve thought it would. Mm-hmm. Now, we'll d- we'll dive into that statement in just a second, but who is this serpent, right? Mm-hmm. Well, Revelation chapter 12 defines the serpent for us by saying that the serpent is in fact Satan, mm-hmm. right? Now, Satan in the Hebrew it has the definite article before it. It is really the Satan. It is the adversary. Yeah. So he is the capital T capital a adversary of God. Mm-hmm. He hates God, right? Why does he hate God? Well, let's go to Ezekiel chapter 28 verses 11 through 19. Now for any old Testament scholars out there, I understand that this particular portion of scripture in many of your view is no, this doesn't apply to Satan. And and that's a valid argument. I could see that from a context. But when we begin to understand the spirit that is the prince of the power of the air, as Ephesians chapter 2 would tell us, I don't think it's much of a stretch to say that there is something at work here in the king of Tyree, who is who this section is actually addressed to, right? Mm-hmm. If you read Ezekiel 28, you look uh, at verses 1 through 19, you'll go, well, this isn't addressed to Satan. This is addressed to the king of Tyree. And you'd be right in saying that. But we know that Satan it has influence on the sinful heart of mankind. And we've seen Satan even possess men before. We see this with Judas, right? Yeah, yeah. He entered into Judas and what did he do? He tried to kill Jesus, right? right? So I don't think that it's too much of a stretch to assume that when, as verse 13 says about the king of Tyree, you were in Eden, the garden of God, that that's probably referring to the spiritual adversary that is influencing this wicked king. Okay, Mm -hmm. so I understand the arguments against it, but let's go ahead and move past that. Here's what verses 11 through 19 say in Ezekiel 28. Again, the word of Yahweh came to me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord Yahweh, You had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. 
You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. The ruby, the topaz, the diamond, the beryl, the the onyx, the jasper, the lapis lazuli, the turquoise, and the emerald, and the gold. The workmanship of your settings and sockets was in you on the day that you were created. They were prepared. You were an anointed cherub who covers, and I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God, and you walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. So we'll stop there for just a moment. Mm -hmm. Clearly, he's talking about a guardian angel. Right. That's what he's referring to. Yeah, this would not be the king of Tyre. Right, and I know there's all kinds of arguments you could say, but understand, this is characteristic of the adversary, Mm -hmm. right? He walked in the holy mountain of God. He was a guardian angel who covers. He was adorned with every precious stone. And by the way, verse 13 that list of stones there, you'll find that same list in the heavenly Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. That is manifestly the glory of God Mm -hmm. in a way that we can understand it. The, 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 the light of all spec of the entire spectrum. Right. So, so Satan before he fell was an absolutely beautiful creation. Mm -hmm. He, he literally reflected the glory of God unto the spiritual creation Mm -hmm. to the angels he was a high and lofty angel, right? Right, And now let's continue on in verse 16. By the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence and you sinned. Notice that, internally. What does your translation say there, Chad? Do you have a different translation than I do? Yeah, I'm in the ESV. It says, in abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst and you sinned. Okay, in your midst, right? The in your midst is within you. Mm-hmm. I have the LSB here. Moving on, it says, therefore... I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God, and I have destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was lofty because of your beauty. Mm -hmm. Right? Remember, he was reflecting the glory of God to the angelic creation, and he became proud. It says, you corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor, and I cast you to the ground. I put you before kings that they may see you. By the abundance of your iniquities, in the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. Therefore, I have brought out fire from the midst of you, and it has consumed you. And I have turned you to ashes on the earth in the eyes of all who see you. All who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have become terrified, and you will cease to be forever. Wow. Mm. Right? So we see this lamentation that is raised up against this wicked king, but we see the evil spiritual influence behind this wicked king mm-hmm. fits the characteristics of Satan himself. Right, which fits with bi- biblical theology well. As you said, Ephesians 2, many different places where it talks about ultimately Satan is behind and orchestrating the evil and the sin in this world, mm-hmm. although man is still responsible for his own sin. Mm-hmm. So Satan at one point was righteous, but then as verse 15 said in this section, there was a point at which unrighteousness was found in him, mm-hmm. right? I can't go much farther than saying that, right? Yeah. I don't know what happened. There's no thing for me to understand uh, further than what the text reveals. But here's what the text does reveal. Verse 17, your heart was lofty because of your beauty. Mm-hmm. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. Yeah. And we know that Isaiah 14, verses 12 through 14, again, same argument from Old Testament scholars there, but the heart of pride is put forward there, yeah. where we see, I will become like the Most High. I will ascend above the heights of God, right? right. So this 
angelic being was beautiful. Make no mistake about it. And that was the very thing that corrupted his own heart. And that's why we can rightly say as Christians, believers, that the root of all sin is pride. It's that original sin, you can be like God. It's that desire to be your own God, to be a self-worshipper, to rise above the Lord himself. Mm -hmm. Which as we talk about the issues in modern day and, and how we receive counsel, that is the crux of the issue. Mm -hmm. is how to figure oneself out and fix oneself and basically be our own God. Yes. And Satan is referred to as the father of lies. Listen to chapter 8 of the gospel according to John in verse 44. Jesus speaking to the Pharisees some scathing words. He says, you are of your father the devil. Now, first of all, I just got to stop there for a second. (laughs) Jesus did not mince words. <laughs> mm-hmm. He was very pointed mm-hmm. when he, uh, in particular, in this particular section here. So he says, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks, he speaks a lie and he speaks from his own nature for he is a liar and the father of lies. Mm-hmm. So let's apply that to the sinner, to us. When we're in a biblical counseling session and the counselor Mm -hmm. begins to hold up the standard of the word of God and confront your sin, do you begin to make up excuses? Do we blame shift? Do we start to lie to Mm ourselves? Because if we do, then our actions are now actually in line with what Satan himself does. Right. And I say often to those that I'm counseling that, we are the greatest deceivers of ourselves. It's because if you start to go down that road of like, well, you're you're really being a liar right now. Mm. I'm not lying to anyone else. Yeah, but if you blame shift and if you're not seeing your sin rightly, you're you are lying to yourself. Yeah, about yourself. And it doesn't make it any less of a lie. No. And it still leads to death. Mm-hmm. And it still, it still is displeasing right. to God. Because. Godly sorrow leads to repentance. Mm-hmm. Uh, 2 Corinthians uh, 7, 10 through 12 will tell you that the godly sorrow leads to repentance, but worldly sorrow leads to death. Yes, Worldliness still has sorrow. We still have guilt and shame and everything that comes along with the consequences of sin. The reason why worldly sorrow leads to death is because it does not lead to repenting and worshiping a holy God. That's right. But godly sorrow, we say, I see my sin, I acknowledge my sin. I agree with God about my sin and I confess my sin, which he's faithful to forgive. And we're freed from it and we're able to walk in truth and righteousness. Mm -hmm. So that's a little bit about where sin began, where it resides and what it means in the Hebrew and Greek language. But the final thing we want to say before we move on to the world's view of evil Mm -hmm. and its origin is the extent to which sin has spread. And again, we go back to Genesis chapter three. We read verses 14 through 19. Here's what God says in response to the sin of the serpent, of Adam, and of Eve. God says to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than any of the cattle and more than any beast of the field. So there, Mm -hmm. although we know that the serpent itself, this is not your typical garden snake. This is a different creature altogether because it was before the flood. It was during a very unique time in creation, and it was possessed of Satan himself. We see here God curses the entire animal kingdom. 
right? Cursed are you more than any of the cattle and more than any beast of the field. On your belly you will go and dust you will eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. That's the first promise of hope we see there. Mm -hmm. Next in verse 16, God says to the woman, I will greatly multiply your pain and conception. In pain, you will bear children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. So there we see the birthing process fundamentally change from being something that is joy-filled and life-giving throughout its process into being a very painful ordeal. Mm -hmm. And we also see the marriage relationship being flipped on its head there. Now the woman will desire to rule over her husband, but the husband will unfortunately, sinfully, most of the time, rule over her, domineering, et cetera, et cetera. So we see relationships changed fundamentally there, and we see the introduction of pain uh, universally, but specifically in this context, in conception. Then God says to Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you. So now the entire creation uh, physical nature is been has been cursed. And in pain, you will eat of it all the days of your life. Our relationship to work has been fundamentally changed. Mm-hmm. It now produces an, uh, I got to go to work versus, a, ah, this is great. This is mm-hmm. so fulfilling. He says, both thorns and thistles, it shall grow for you and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you will eat bread till you return to the ground because from it, you were taken. For you are, uh, you, you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So just a devastating effect that sin brought into the creation, and it's mm. permeated all throughout the entirety of creation, both right. spiritually and physically. So the Bible's real clear on the origin of evil. What does the world have to say about it? <laughs> well, the world has many uh, different definitions, but the, the one that it rests in is that there is no God. Like that is really where we sit right now, um, which has been happening all throughout time uh, to worship other gods. But now we we sit in a time of history to where we've had Darwinism and the the rise of science and philosophy, and philosophy that all stem from the likes of Nietzsche mm-hmm. or Kant, Immanuel Kant. Yeah, or, morality without a moral, you know, superior. Right. And from that, we get Darwinism, that the evolutionary theory, the Big Bang theory, that all this happened out of chance, and we're just basically organisms that are just trying to survive, survival of the fittest. And so we are just basically these uh, animals that are... Biological machines without a soul. Exactly. That's basically how it views us, right? And when it does try to, when the world does try to talk about the soul, mm-hmm. it, it has no real authoritative text that it goes to. No, right? No, some some sectors of psychology would would acknowledge a spirituality, a spiritual aspect of humans consciousness. But there's no definition for that. It can be whatever you want it to be, as, as long as it it's very pragmatic. As long as it helps you. Mm-hmm then it's good. Yeah, and of course, we're being very, you know, oversimplified in our discussion of it, but at the end of the day, if you don't have a source of truth that exists outside Mm -hmm. of you that is perfect in every way, shape, and form, well then, yeah, at the end of the day, it's ultimately just going to boil down to whatever Mm -hmm. you want it to be. 
and I can uh, address some of this specifically here in a moment of the actual views of each each uh, way. But I know you have a, a great article. Um, yeah, let me you, let me quote it here. Yeah. So again, it's the article, "The Significance of Sin for the Psychologies" by Dr. Ernie Baker, and in this article, he quotes many different secular psychologists. But one that he quotes here is Robert S. Feldman's book, "Understanding Psychology," and he says about the definition of psychology that most. psychological textbooks would define it this way, quote, psychology is the scientific study of behavior and mental processes. Consequently, the phrase behavior and mental processes in the definition of psychology must be understood to mean many things. Mm -hmm. It encompasses not just people's actions, but also thoughts, emotions, perceptions, reasoning processes, memories, and even the biological activities that maintain bodily function. And so, that's just a basic definition mm-hmm. that would most people would agree on. But because most people would agree on the fact that it's quite broad, there's also many different theories as to mm-hmm. why people have behavior and mental processes, and why we have the ones that we do. And there's definitely a vast array of approaches for helping these issues that arise in, in these other in these particular contexts. So to quote the article again, in other words, you would say that each psychology offers its own view of the problem and solution when we're talking about the origin of evil. Each solution has its own set of methodologies consisting of types of questions, homework, and tests that are used to carry out the approach to people's problems. Continuing on, Dr. Ernie Baker says, quote, viewing this theologically, each psychology has a view of sin. Here, they are answering the question, what is the source of the problem? Each then has a view of salvation and each has a view of sanctification, answering the questions, what is the solution to the problem and the methodology for carrying it out, end quote. So we can see that, first of all, uh, people are religious by nature and we're always going to try to diagnose an issue and then prescribe, a, to use the word, sanctifying process of fixing the issue, right? Mm-hmm. And so that is from the article that I've mentioned many times now. And Chad, I want you to bring up a couple of the different approaches and Mm -hmm. methodologies that secular psychology would put forward in addressing the origin of evil. Yeah. Well, the first one is kind of the the father of psychology, if you will, Sigmund Freud. Um, He would would say that man is an instinctual animal coming out of the evolutionary theory and that we have an id, a superego, and an ego. And the problem comes in the conflict between the id and the superego. So in some ways addressing pride there in the superego, but not addressing it in terms of that pride is a problem, it's that when it gets out of control, that's where problems come from, mm. right? And so the solution um, to that problem is not um, to go and... Um, fix that, but the solution for Freud would be to find the source, shift the blame, label it as false guilt, and cultural and societal values, and parents are to blame. So there's a lot of different Mm. ways that he would So it sounds like Freud's solution then is to try to control this. Exactly. Neo-Freudians came out of that. Alfred Adler, kind of the the main uh, founder of that. Mm Mm-hmm. He would look at man as social, a socially governed animal. So he he goes from just individualism to 
well, we're just animals, but it's socially governed, mm -hmm. right? Uh, blaming society. The problem that he would see as we, what we would call sin, he would see it as just being born weak and small. We feel inferior because of our limitations, and it's determined by age five or six years old. And his resolution would be to change the thinking to feel better and have a better behavior. So it sounds right. like he's prescribing cognitive behavioral therapy, right? Change your thinking, right? Yeah. And then you'll largely change your behavior. Right. But that thinking of who you are is very vast. Well, and, it's also permeated by sin. Right. the heart, like we discussed, mm -hmm. involves your mind. It involves your volitions, your cognitions. Mm -hmm. So your thinking is broken. You can't, right. it's already broken. Right. Behaviorism. Many of you have learned this one, B.F. Skinner. I've heard of this one. It's where you get the ideas of like Pavlov's dog, like mm. classical conditioning and mm -hmm. all that stuff. Um, they, he would view man as a conditional animal, a blank tablet. So you just come into the world just blank, and you're conditioned by your environment. So you're not good or evil. Right. So we can follow that all the way down to the first human. H right. How did evil get into Exactly. The and the problem of evil here is just it's environmental failure. Uh. If, if you're messed up, it's... Because something happened in your environment that yeah. just conditioned you that way, right? And so the resolution would be to change the standard according to the client's needs. Okay, you have this issue. How do we condition you to a better resolution, right? So it's all about just conditioning. Um, and I heard you say change the standard. Is that like the standard of morality? Oh, yeah. Um, so once again, if you, you're coming in saying, I don't know, to give an example use a uh say you're coming in with i don't know a pornography problem yeah say like, okay you see that as a problem right he's not necessarily saying it's a problem but hey you got there because you know when you're a kid this happened yeah. and you were exposed and so you're conditioned to want it and it's all that yada 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 yeah so if you don't want that okay the standard would be that that's bad for you you don't want that anymore so how do I help you condition yourself behaviorally to no longer look at so, it? So, okay, every time I have a sexual thought, I mm -hmm. need to think this. Or every right. time I, you know, do something inappropriate physically, I need to do right. this. So that's behavior. Right. It's okay. that idea that the experiment of Pavlov's dog kind of came out of this camp. Every time he fed his dog, he rung a bell. Yeah. So later when he'd ring a bell, he would be conditioned to salivate because mm -hmm. he's thinking he's going to eat. Right. Yeah, yeah. That same kind of idea. Um, we got family systems, um, Nathan Ackerman. I skipped a couple that I got just for time's sake, mm -hmm. but I'm just going for the more, um, popular ones. Views man as a product of a flawed relationship in the family, right? Once again, it's sort of the same thing as what, um, Neo-Freudians are saying a little mm -hmm. bit. Um, the problem system is faulty, casualty of a bad family situation, uh, individual is simply fulfilling their function in that messed up system, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So if you come from an abusive relationship, that's why you're abusive, that's why you struggle with anger, and you're fulfilling that, you know, that cog. It's in like that a very world. fatalistic way of looking at exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah. Now, the resolution there is changing the family relationship. It's where you get family therapy. We got to deal with the whole family and uh -huh. the whole system, and we got to change the whole family to for everyone to function healthily huh. on societal standards. Interesting. Um, we also have um, 12 Steps. That's very popular. Uh, right? The 12 Steps of Alcoholics Anonymous? AA, Celebration Recovery, mm -hmm. Bill Wilson, Wilson, Bob Smith. 
this we view addiction and behaviors as a disease, a disease or a victim of illness. Mm-hmm. The problem is that you have a disease, and um, the the resolution is to learn to cope with the disease. Yes, right through a program or through some sort of behavior modification. Mm-hmm. You got the psychological gospel. This is various Christian counselors. We're trying to integrate. Mm-hmm. Uh, views man as a passive victim. Um, problem is emotional needs not met, wounded, low self-esteem, low mm-hmm. self-image. And the resolution is to be healed, fulfilled, loved, high view of self, sort of sees Christ as a, the big psychologist in the sky mm-hmm. that's there to meet your needs, yeah. make you feel better. And you said right. something that's very critical here, and we'll end the podcast on mm-hmm. um, on this note because this is just a brief survey, but mm-hmm. you said something very critical about the psychological gospel. It views man as a victim. Yeah. The Bible has no such notion of mankind. Right. Adam and Eve, as we're going to see in the next podcast, when we, when we deep dive Genesis chapter 3 and we look at the seed of every sin present, Adam and Eve voluntarily chose this. They actually desired to lean on their own understanding. They weren't a victim of Satan. Satan can't force you to do anything. He can influence mm-hmm. strongly. He can tempt. But as we're going to see in next week's podcast, Adam and Eve chose to do this by their own free volition. They were desiring to be wise, it said. Mm -hmm. And so we'll dive into that. But just by way of review, we learned about the biblical view of sin today, which is the origin of evil. That's the word that we use for evil primarily is sin. And then we looked at just a couple, which we will definitely dive deeper into other models of psychology. Mm -hmm. We looked at a couple of their best shots at it to try to figure out the origin of evil. And so if you feel confused about that, there's a reason why. Yeah. Because they're not agreeable. They're not all agreed on the origin right. of evil. Whereas the Bible presents one unified story that just makes sense in reality. Mm-hmm. And so we want to encourage you, listener, turn to the Bible. The Bible will tell you who you really are and it will show you who God is. Mm. And then it will provide the solution to the origin of evil, yeah. which we will get into at another podcast. Chad, you got any final things to say before we sign off today? Yeah. Um, one I forgot to mention, I'll briefly hit it here and we can talk about it later, but chemical imbalance theory mm-hmm. uh, is also very popular um, in our world. And that one just views people as basically a bag of chemicals, mm. you know. And That's the biomedical yeah, point. If you're, if something's off, something's not normative, it must mean there must be a chemistry off and we deal with that through medication. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'll hit that briefly because people listen to this and be like, you missed one of the most popular yeah, ones. We're going to get into Sorry that, that one later. Sorry about that. Um, and what all of them have in common, what Mike has sort of said already, but that none of, none of these ways of psychology view sin as sin. They view, they see that there's a problem, but the problem only exists in some people. Mm-hmm. And there is a, a reason for the problem that's, that's shifted to all sorts of different ways, but no, none of them view your issue as sin before a holy God. Well, we thank you all for listening to another episode of the Nehemiah Project podcast. And we'll talk to you soon. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Nehemiah Project podcast. For more resources about addiction recovery, suicide prevention, and overcoming other life controlling issues, you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram and visit our website, tnproject.org. If you or someone you love is struggling, don't hesitate to reach out to us by calling 985-205-3022.